better. And amazingly, he speaks into our lives through his word. So there's like a, a miracle that happens sometimes while you're reading his word and studying it. There's actually something more than just reading a novel or reading history. There's the Holy Spirit and life being imparted. And I, I just want to encourage you as we speak about God's word this morning. It's actually within the framework of what the writer to the Hebrews was asking of them, that they don't neglect God's Word, that they don't drift away from the things that they have learned and become distracted or drawn back into their past lives. So, last week we spoke about Jesus being better than all the others, and I shared that He's the final prophet, the perfect priest, the eternal King, and these three ideas were very, very dear to the Jewish people. They were proud of the fact that they had the prophets. They were proud of the fact that they had the, the, the sacrificial system, the, the temple, and the way to covenant with God. It set them above all the other people. They were very, um, let's say, almost in danger of putting their identity and their traditions and their customs. And so if you had to speak about the prophets or speak about the sacrifices, the priests, the temple, they would be defensive. And how defensive, you may ask, well, you can go and look at Acts chapter 7, where Peter, where, where Stephen preaches, and Stephen is the first martyr, and, and what happens is, he, he just touches on those things, and he starts attacking some of those things, saying Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those things, and then they kill him. So this is pretty serious identity stuff for Jewish people. And Jesus is being put forward as the better and the final version of these institutions. He's the eternal king who's seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. He's, he's, he's there to reign forever. And so these ideas should be, really we should hold them in our minds as we look at this passage to understand this is a challenge to Jewish people to the very things that they have been putting their hope and trust in but now it's come to Christians who have in a sense found Jesus but they have this temptation after walking a long road to maybe just take it for granted or just become complacent and not celebrate it to the level they should celebrate it. So these are important ideas to Jewish people and we should understand the writer is writing to people who were formerly following these ways but now follow Christ. Jesus came as the final and perfect version of each and so we read Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's where we finished last week with a comma, which obviously is not a full stop. So it wasn't the end of the thought, but we stopped there because that was like a moment of, of, of reason where the first three verses present Jesus as supreme. And then the writer continues in Hebrews 1 verse 4 having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And I don't really know when I first read this, this book if I had a clue why angels had anything to do with the story. 
what made angels important. Actually, in Jewish history, angels were very important because like prophets, they represented moments where God came and interacted with Israel. And in fact, the angels were involved in the giving of the law. So there's a thought being dropped in here that this is also about the law that came to Moses, not just the prophets, not just the priesthood. But what else was so precious to the Jewish people was they had the Torah. They had God's very own words that were given on Mount Sinai and the angels were there. So this is a, another reason why the angels are being contrasted to Christ. So Jesus is having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name? The name Son of God. So the reason for this comparison is the superiority of Christ as the messenger, the bringer of the message. The Jews held the law in high regard and angels were a big part of the supernatural delivery of the commandments. In Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 it speaks about there being thousands and thousands of angels present in that moment when God was up on Sinai. And in Galatians 3 verse 19, if you look at Galatians 3 verse 19, Paul is writing, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Moses came and put the law into place, but the angels acted as the carriers. So we had this idea that God wrote with his sparking finger. You've seen the, you know, the meme, I don't know, the, the picture of the stone tablets and God is like writing and his finger barely touches the stone and there's a zap and a spark. It looks like arc welding, some plasma, something going on there. And it's, you know, here come the Ten Commandments. And then you think he handed those over to Moses. And maybe Moses wasn't actually good enough to stand that close to God and like, you know, risk, I don't know, the angels were there, the angels actually were involved in the giving of the law. And the Jews were very aware of this in their history. And we see in the Word of God, angels are described as sons of God. Like in Job 1 verse 6, it says in Job 1 verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Why Satan? Because Satan was also an angelic being. He was a fallen angel. He had turned against God. But the sons of God there means angels. So God is in heaven. The picture Job has is there's this, this court of heaven and God is seated on his throne and he allows the angels to come and report to him. And among the angels reporting to God is also Satan. And all collectively these are described as sons of God because they were created by God. But now there's a different title given to Jesus. Yeah. And this is important to understand because it doesn't always carry over quite as well in, in the English language. But see, nowhere is the title of son used individually except for Jesus. So we accept that we are God's children, you and I. We are sons and daughters of God through adoption. There's a very big difference in the sense of where we came from and how we got into God's family and where Jesus came from and how He is actually God. So nowhere do, do sons of God for angels or sons and daughters of God 
no one is described as an individually the Son of God. So Jesus basically is God's one and only Son. That's the point the writer is trying to make. Jesus is in relation to God. He is like, a, he is God, but he is God the Son. And so Hebrews 1 verse 5 drives the point home further. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, singular, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here we have a unique relationship between the father and the son being described. So the role of the angels in bringing the law added some kind of weight to the law that Moses brought to Israel. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to make it clear that Jesus is completely superior even though on earth he looked just like a man he looks like okay he's just another guy he's not shining in light well i guess he might have at the transfiguration i wasn't there um but you know moses was elijah was and um, the writers wanting to show you the nature of his relationship to the father is that he is the one and only son and he is god and in John 3 verse 16 it says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Again this term begotten, it actually, um, the one and only, mono, you know like if you have stereo, two channels, mono, one channel. Monogenesis is the actual Greek word for only begotten Son. So He's the only one who is God. Monogenesis, He comes from God, He is God, He's God the Son. And so this now, if you were in any doubt, Hebrews 1 verse 6 makes it abundantly clear. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. So Jesus is being affirmed as not just one of the sons of God, but the one and only son of God. That sounds a bit confusing, eh? Hey? One of the sons of God, like angels, like human beings are adopted, sons and daughters. No, he's not one of the sons of God. He's the one and only son of God, meaning he is God the Son. And so he is, the angels were instructed to worship Jesus. Yeah. So if it comes to someone who comes to bring an announcement, if the angels appeared and we took them seriously, how much more seriously should we take the appearing of Jesus? Yes. How much more seriously should we listen to what Jesus had to say if the angels worship Him? So we read on in Hebrews 1 verse 7. I'm going to read right through now to verse 13. Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, the writer to the Hebrews unleashes this barrage of Old Testament scriptures. 
We've been reading quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament, and these are all quotes to show that Jesus is not just another messenger. He's not just one of the angels. And in fact, if the law was brought by angels, what do you think was brought by God himself? Something better. Something that exceeds it. Something that fulfills it. Something that perfects it. Jesus himself, the very exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory. Yes, Jesus. And, and so the danger is when you start looking at the word of God for too long, too many years pass by, and you're just studying like you were studying the law or some set of teachings or some set of rules, but you should have your breath taken away by Jesus. Yes. That's really what the writer wants to emphasize, that Jesus is vastly superior and he himself is both the message and the messenger. So at the close of chapter 1, I would say it like this. The angels have been put in their place. Now where that place is, is very high. Jude teaches us that we shouldn't go around uh, disrespecting the heavenly beings. So angels and demons for that matter are probably far more capable than we are. Certainly of knowing stuff through the centuries because they're a lot older than us and they could travel places we don't go. And on and on there's reasons why we should have a kind of a sense of respect when it comes to dealing with spiritual beings. Don't mess around with demons if you don't know what you're doing. Don't command angels because actually maybe they're not yours to command. They're God's messengers. We one day may judge the angels. Scripture says that. We judge the angels. One day we may be in the senior position because we are adopted children of God. We actually brothers of Christ, sisters of Him, but actually now, angels are great beings. But, great for what reason? Great for what reason? Because historically, there's been a danger that also, not, not only are the angels not respected, but then at another time, they may be worshipped in the wrong way. And so, in a sense now, the writer is just saying when it comes to Jesus, he is superior to the angels. And verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so now the purpose of the angels as heralds and messengers and ministering spirits is revealed. The angels were given and are given to support the saints and those who are predestined to be saints, those who are going to inherit the message of salvation. And so if you have to ask what was the goal of the angels, what is the goal of the angels? It's tied to the gospel. It's tied to salvation. It's tied to announcing, heralding and helping for the gospel to be embraced. But what is therefore the, the great thing in all of this? It's God's salvation. And so if the purpose of the angels was to help the law come to Israel and to help people to hear God's message, and the law, its purpose was to lead people to Christ because it was supposed to show them their need for a savior, then when the savior comes, the message is even a thousand times clearer. And Jesus is worshipped by the angels. And the angels to this day then are ministering spirits whose purpose is to 
help those who are to inherit salvation. So the writer is saying, put your focus where it should be, on Christ and His salvation. Don't be distracted by angels and demons. Put your focus on Christ and His salvation. That's the very great thing. And so Hebrews 2 verse 1 comes with the first, in a way, warning, but it's an exhortational warning, meaning it's an encouraging caution. We'll read from Hebrews 2 verse 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know what they say? Whenever you see a therefore, you must ask what the therefore is there for. In other words, it's saying, based on the verses that preceded this verse, this is how we should respond. So because Jesus is superior to the angels, and because the angels were ministering spirits that were there to help those who would inherit salvation, in light of all of this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. The Gospel, the message of Jesus is so important that even if you've been a believer for 50 years, you must pay close attention to what you've heard lest you drift away. There exists the possibility that any one of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, we could drift away. And the answer is we should pay closer attention. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, true, every, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that's an assessment of the Old Covenant. It's saying God gave His Word. He said, these are my commands. If you follow my commands, I'll bless you. If you leave my commands, I'll curse you. And what does the history of Israel teach us? It's true. When Israel walked well in obedience to God's Word, they prospered. And when they disobeyed God's Word, they got into all kinds of trouble. So that's like truth that's been tested and it's still right. If that message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation as the one Jesus brought? In other words, if the one that the angels brought, the old covenant, mattered, it was a matter of life and death, how much more does the gospel matter? And how much more is it not a matter of life and death? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, one that was mediated by God Himself, the Son, and announced by God Himself, the Son, and enacted by God Himself, the Son of God? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And this is what I said in the first introduction of this series, that these guys who are listening and the guy who's writing, they view themselves as second generation. In other words, they heard the message from the apostles and the early church. This is now the early 60s, so it's decades after Jesus went um, up to heaven. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. In other words, just like the angels and the drama on Mount Sinai, the, the smoke and the, and the fire, there was 
there was a demonstrative, dramatic, miraculous display. And so too, in the birthing of the church, there was the outpouring of the Spirit. There were miraculous healings. There were prison doors flung open. There was so much testimony, so much testimony. So, the caution, let's just dig into it a bit. Pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In what ways might we neglect so great a salvation? Well, I would put it to you that if there were consequences to neglecting the law for Israel, there are even bigger consequences to someone who ignores this salvation. If it was a total ignoring of salvation, if you were given the gospel and you just didn't heed it, there's eternal consequences. You will spend eternity separated from God in hell because Jesus is the only way to the Father. So the, you might neglect so great a salvation. Maybe this isn't the majority of the Hebrews reading this letter. They were believers. But certainly, if we don't receive the message at all, there are very grievous consequences. Now, I want to mention this point for the sake of anyone who hears me who might not have responded to the gospel. See, in Acts 17 verse 29, Paul has been preaching uh, to these, um, these Greeks and he's, uh, we, he's reasoning with them around God's salvation that's come in Jesus and telling them that Jesus is actually the unknown God, the one that you should know. And we read this in Acts 17 verse 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. That verse often weighs heavily on me because when you a Christian and you think of evangelism, you often think that you are pleading with people to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And you're inviting them and trying to present the gospel in a, in a winsome fashion, which we should do at times. We should try to win people with tact and some measure of diplomacy. But deep down inside, it's not a, please receive Jesus. From God's perspective, it's a command yeah. to all on earth that the way has been made open to return to Him, now return. Because Jesus came, everything changed. You see, the times of ignorance God overlooked, the times where, where Jesus hadn't walked the earth and He hadn't shown the power of His kingdom and He hadn't risen from the dead to show His victory over death, you couldn't blame, you couldn't blame people that much for not recognizing salvation. But salvation itself has come in Jesus' person. He's laid down His life. He's died on the cross and He is risen and He reigns. And He was seen by hundreds of witnesses after His resurrection. And so God, there's no more excuse for being ignorant. It's been demonstrated plainly. And so now God commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere. Yeah. So the gospel is a proclamation and a declaration. It's not just an invitation. Yes. 
And there are huge consequences for those who ignore it. Acts 17 verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Jesus comes back to judge the world, he is a righteous judge who fairly demonstrated his victory to the, the, the world by being risen from the dead, by being seen, by performing miracles, by pouring out his spirit, by breaking open prison doors. There's no excuse. In the past, God overlooked, but no longer. Why? Because it's not impossible to come to God anymore. You can't make an excuse and say, God, you never made a way for me to come to you. You can't say, Jesus, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how to come to the Father. Jesus says, just come to me. Bow the knee. Repent. Turn, give your heart to me. I'll be your Lord and Savior. I died for you. Believe. Have faith. It's all by faith. Through grace. I mean, by grace, through faith. So, this I wanted to throw in, just five minutes extra, on understanding the seriousness of rejecting these proofs that God displayed through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself spoke when he was on earth, and he was doing the very miracles. In Matthew 12 verse 28, we read, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which is exactly what was happening when Jesus was on earth. He was demonstrating the kingdom. He says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he, indeed he may plunder his house. And what he's saying is that... The world was captive to sin and Satan was the god of this age who was ruling over people and they bound and then Jesus comes and he binds the enemy, he overcomes the devil and he takes us as his captives. He, we are the goods of the household. Jesus plunders from what was under the authority of the devil. Jesus comes and wins back for himself. And then he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, what's really going down with this unforgivable sin is actually a question of forgiveness as a whole and where you can obtain it. I'm going to read from a commentator, Wearsby, who writes this. It appears that this situation existed only while Christ was ministering on earth. Jesus did not appear to be different from any other Jewish man. Isaiah 53 explains that. He's just, there was nothing special in his appearance that people would be drawn to Jesus. To speak against Christ could be forgiven while he was on earth. But when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost as proof that Jesus was the Christ and was alive, to reject the witness of the Spirit was final. The only consequence would be judgment. When the leaders rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting the Father who sent him. So God sends John the Baptist as a herald to say, prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. 
And what did they do to him? They rejected, by and large, they rejected his message. Some went out to him to get a baptism of repentance, but for the most part he was viewed as a freak and eventually beheaded. When they rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting the Father who sent him. When they rejected Jesus, they were rejecting the Son. When they reject the ministry of the, Holy, the Apostles, they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. And that's the end. There are no more witnesses. The Father sent prophets, the Father sent the final one in the spirit of Elijah, whatever, John the Baptist. Then the Father sends His Son, and then the Father sends His Spirit. And once you said, no, I'm not going to believe, what way to salvation is left for you? None. There's no more witness, and such a rejection cannot be forgiven. And so we understand that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually saying, I refuse to believe what I should believe when I'm even seeing the miracles with my own eyes. I remain closed off to the only way to salvation, which is Jesus, to whom the Holy Spirit is attesting. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And the Pharisees were saying, nah, this isn't the one. So of course that's unforgivable. You can't be forgiven if you've closed yourself off to the only path to forgiveness. So it's not something a Christian does. You don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's something someone does in rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, which is the means to salvation. So that's the first way in which we might um, neglect so great a salvation, if we don't receive the message at all. But the second way we could be neglecting so great a salvation, it's more applicable to you and me as believers, is if we don't keep to the message. If we don't keep to the message, if we distort the truth, if we distort the truth or if we drift from the truth or if we dive into error. And these are things that happen all the time. It's possible to fall from grace without losing your salvation. Did you know that? You could just be like the Galatians, who as believers were wanting to turn back to Jewish customs. They wanted to reintroduce circumcision. They wanted to bring back more of the law and the ceremony. But what Paul said to them is that you've fallen from grace. And he asked them, where's all your joy? Because when you move from grace and freedom and the gospel into legalism and religion, you don't have joy anymore. Because now it depends on you, not on Jesus. And sadly enough, what we find is when we start to add our own forms of circumcision back into our faith, we lose our joy. And when we add to the cross, Paul says, we deny its power. And so the cross becomes less powerful in your life the more of your own effort you put into your salvation. That's the justification part of your salvation. Some kind of moralism, some kind of legalism creeps in. We distort the truth. So that's on the one hand. And the church has been very good at that. Finding ways of creating secondary mechanisms to make you a, you know, a better Christian than the rest. Yeah. And most of us just feel like more guilty Christians than the rest because we fail at all the bars we set. The bar for salvation is Jesus. But we can also drift from the truth. We could fail to heed the price and cheapen grace. 
we could become familiar with the gospel as a believer and say, oh yeah, I know the gospel, I know what Jesus did, I'm, I'm living in His grace. But actually you become lazy and licentious. You think grace is so awesome, God will just overlook everything so there's no consequences to what you do. I sleep with my boyfriend, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to, you know, I didn't want it, but I did, so, you know, it's okay, God will forgive me. Yes, but there are eternal consequences for sin, not heaven-hell consequences, inheritance consequences, progress in the faith consequences, questions of your own sense of security and assurance and intimacy with God. You can't sin and be intimate with God. You can't live in an ongoing sin and say your conscience is clean and you're hanging out with Jesus and His Spirit. No ways. You can't be productive and fruitful if you're not abiding in Christ. And so whatever fruit you could have produced is not going to be produced while you're living in sin. And so going on your life as a Christian, just resting on grace as if it was cheap, has consequences. Yes. If we fail to heed the price and we think God will overlook everything, we have some kind of liberalism, licentiousness, and we can take it even further and we can dive into error. And this is the third way in which we neglect salvation in the church history is false doctrines, false ideas, universalism. God just accepts everyone. God just loves everyone. God just forgives everyone. When in reality the gospel is not inclusive, it's exclusive. The gospel is available to all, but it says come and die to yourself. You and your past life, no matter what past life it is, have to be left behind. And you, repentance means you're turning toward God, you're changing your mind and believing in Him, not believing in your own identity and works. And so you could claim like, uh, I'm just a kleptomaniac, so I'm always going to steal. It's, it's, God just made me a kleptomaniac, so I will always steal. Like that's almost the country I live in here, Madagascar. Stealing is like almost a national hobby. You go on the bus with your phone, you get off the bus, you don't have your phone. Someone took it. I'm teasing you Malagazis, come on. I'm not really hating on you. Just understand, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. But, but people could make an excuse, like, I, don't, I can't stop. But scripture says, God empowers you. He, by His grace, He trains you to say no to unrighteousness. And so, those who steal, let them steal no longer. It means you cannot live like you lived before. You can't just be who you always were after you become a Christian. And so we can't just say the gospel accepts everything and everyone as they are. It says, no, you lay yourself down and you become like Christ. And on the opposite end of the scale, rather than false inclusivity and universalism, we find cultish belonging rules. The church has introduced other errors like Baptism will save you as long as you're baptized in this particular church. I mean, there are big denominations in Tanner where they preach and they tell people, if you weren't baptized in this denomination, you're not going to heaven. That's just a demonic spirit of control to try and manipulate people and own the people when the people belong to Jesus if they belong to anyone or they belong to the devil. So cultish belonging rules like baptism to save you or by adding some kind of new requirement 
or new revelation or new prophet or new angelic appearance. Think new prophets like Muhammad or new angels like Moroni. You know Moroni, not Macaroni, Moroni. <laughs> he, was, he was the angel that appeared to Joseph Smith and then came Mormonism. Is not tiny or inconsequential. They're evangelizing under a deception that came from angelic appearance after Jesus, who is better than all the angels. So why would you need Moroni? What happened to Joseph Smith that he got to that point that he could be so deceived, even if he understood salvation, he never looked at what the writer to Hebrews was explaining about Jesus. He must have neglected so great a salvation. Or else he was just being deceived and used. I've mentioned weird visions that women have while they're walking in the fields. Ellen G. White. I don't accept. It's not scriptural. The full and final prophet was Jesus. The full and final revelation is in his word, the Bible. And nothing outside of that is adding anything. It's taking us off away from the true gospel, away from salvation. So are not some parts of the church neglecting this great salvation by adding to it, again, other things and elements of legalism? Does this not end up delaying the gospel from spreading to the hearts that need it? So what should we do? My last point. Heed the warning. Heed the exhortation. When the writer to the Hebrews writes to Christians, to believers, to believers who maybe been believers a long time, he's saying, you still mustn't neglect the message. You must celebrate it. So today we're going to celebrate it with communion. We're going to break bread and we're going to remember Jesus. Celebration of the salvation that he paid for in his body and in his blood. Don't assume the gospel. Don't assume you know the gospel. You know, if I assume the gospel, it's like me believing that everything I needed to know about the gospel I received on the day I received Jesus. Like I came as a 10 year old or whatever I was and I heard Jesus would be my best friend and I knew he took away my sins and I believed and I was saved. That's all true. But if I stopped there and I say all I needed to understand about the gospel and about the message that I'd received was that I will go to heaven, I'm a spiritual baby and I'm a baby in the Word of God. I don't, I'm neglecting it because there's so much more to the salvation. That's why later the writer to the Hebrews says, you should have gone on beyond these elementary teachings of baptism and the laying on of hands and that and this of you. Hebrews, I don't know, 6. So, don't assume it. Explain it. Explain the gospel to yourself. Explain the gospel to someone else. What you'll discover as you try to explain it to yourself, or you try to explain it to someone else, is that you start to feel a little uncertain. Do I, do I really know what I'm saying? Am I really right in saying this or that? So don't assume the gospel from your past life experience. Explain it to yourself and explain it to someone else. Don't become familiar, but rather scrutinize. Scrutinize what you believe, scrutinize the Word of God to see if it's still lining up. And recalibrate yourself. Don't recalibrate the Word of God. Yeah. 
So, like, today, I want to give you, a, this is a bit of a vulnerable confession, because I'm more Calvinist in my theology. I've said before that, for me, personally, I'm a kind of once saved, always saved person. But I never take the warning passages in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 lightly. I still don't understand them fully. And every now and then I ask God, am I wrong? Is it possible to lose your salvation? God, should I be more like the part of the body of Christ that really thinks you can lose your salvation? Why? Because I may need to recalibrate myself if I'm wrong. So I don't know what your theology of salvation is, but you should explain it to yourself, and then you should go back to the Word of God, and then you should test and see, does this still hold up in my mind and in my heart? Do I still believe exactly this? I'm not telling you, by the way, what to believe. Did you notice that? I didn't tell you whether you have to be once saved, always saved, because I believe that. I'm saying you need to know what you believe. Where did you get that belief? Prove it to yourself from the Word of God. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Think deeply about how you work out your salvation. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul says to the Philippians, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why is it fear and trembling? Not fear of going to hell, fear of reverential respect for the fact that we should be in the truth, not partly in truth and partly in our own imagination. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You're a young believer, you should be painfully aware that when Jesus came and indwelt you, as you received Him as your Lord and Savior, He put His Spirit inside of you, and it says that your body no longer is your own, it was bought with a price, therefore honor God. That's important. Where you go, Jesus is in you. Are you in grace? Or Galatians, I've already made reference to that, I'll skip that one. But basically there Paul says to the Galatians, uh, Stand firm, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You've fallen away from grace. You are running well. And in Galatians 5 verse 8 he says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, someone can persuade you away from the truth as a believer. You can be led into and under a yoke of slavery. How do we do that to other Christians? We come and put idols in their lives. Like we say, if you do this sin, God will do that to you. And we, churches, pastors lie sometimes. They say, if you don't pray, God won't bless you. It's nonsense. You must pray and God blesses you even when you don't pray. In Christ Jesus. We'll never be punished. We'll be disciplined for sure. But punished, judged and rejected for our sin? No. So here's a kind of closing couple of questions. Are you forever grateful that God sent His Son? And are you looking forward to his second advent, even while we look forward to celebrating his first advent? That's a test. 
Are you as excited and more so that Jesus is coming back? Are you trusting in your sanctification for your justification and becoming driven as a Christian? In other words, you, you're thinking the quality of your right standing with God depends on your performance for God. If you're drifting into trusting in your sanctification as in place of your justification, go back to the grace of the gospel. Are you trusting in your justification for your sanctification and becoming complacent? Have you stopped caring about how hard you work for Jesus? And you're just resting and cheapening grace and living a liberal sinful life, trusting in your justification for your sanctification. Don't. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are you standing by grace, living by faith, abiding in Him, knowing His peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit? Then you're in good ground. Then you're in good ground. You should ever be joyful because of what Jesus has done. Won't you stand? The band can come up. We're going to worship together.